So once again, Jones, what was briefly yours is now mine. What a fitting end to your life's pursuits. You're about to become a permanent addition to this archaeological find. Who knows? In a thousand years, even you may be worth something. <laughs> Son of a bitch. I'm afraid we must be going now, Dr. Jones. Our prize is awaited in Berlin. But I do not wish to leave you down in that awful place, all alone. Slimy babe, you let me go! Stop it! Welcome to episode 38 of Do You Expected to Talk? I'm your host, Becca, and joining me, as always, are fellow adventurers, Chris and Dave. How are you doing? Adventurers, I like it. We're, yeah. we're, we're, yeah. we're venturing into uh, podcast land. Well, <laughs> not like I've not been here before, but hey. <laughs> yeah, that's like venturing into your own kitchen. It's, just not, it's not that scary. It, it can be very daunting sometimes. <laughs> It's adventuring in one in one sense because this is new ground, folks. Yes, uh, a franchise, a completely Definitely. new franchise. Well, not as long, but it, it's it's a franchise nonetheless. <laughs> this is a pit stop, really, isn't it? Yeah, kind of. But uh, I, I I think I think it should be a good one. I mean, I'm I'm quite a fan of this series, um, even more so than another uh, Lucas produced series that everyone worships. But I prefer this one. Shall we say that's quite controversial? But <laughs> I suppose find out more. In a, find out more in about two years, folks. <laughs> <laughs> two years time. Wow. Well, I think the ones we've announced will probably take us through. I mean, it, it is just worth saying on the record very quickly before we talk about the film we're going to talk about tonight. Um, we have announced the next few. Where what we're about to talk about tonight, you will know because you clicked on this episode and it has a name. But I'll let Becca introduce it in a minute. We've got. Uh, Star Trek following this short series. We've then got uh, the Superman series, and that's going to be Superman, the 1978 Christopher Reeve film, through Superman Returns, the 2006 Brandon Routh uh, version. I will explain why it stops there when we get there. Then we're going to be covering uh, all of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Then we are going to cover the Sergio Leone um Western, so basically the three dollars films. Not, not uh, all the westerns. Of the West. Not, not all. every western ever made. We <laughs> rode back from that. Um, and and then in terms of what we've got lined up already, we're going to move on then to the Quentin Tarantino films. Some of the details for all of those are yet to be worked out, but all of that is going to take us some time, and then we'll move on to other things. But yes, there's certainly been conversations about Star Wars and about. Um, Rocky and Batman and other things, but um, that's all to be figured out down the line. We've got a fairly full slate at the moment. 
Definitely. I mean, it's, the, the problem. The problem is, is like we still got like like Marvel films. You've got still got ongoing films. So it's, uh, you think, or oh, where where should we plan this? I mean, should we plan it to uh, the the second part of uh, the Infinity Wars or what? I, you know, who knows? But I, I think it. I think it will come where it comes. I think what what's going to be more difficult is whether we try to go the sort of now playing route and. Um, head for sort of weekend of release, which is always difficult because as soon as you miss a week, you're out of step. But assuming you could do that, or whether, for example, if, let's say, Thor Ragnarok is released somewhere, you know, during that series, do we wait for it to be on home release and deal with it then? Because I have to say, full kudos to film reviewers because I think some we did change our mind a little bit on Spectre, there is something about going to the cinema and the experience where you're anticipating something that probably makes what you say about that film less reliable than if you've had time to sit and ruminate on it. Yeah, definitely. It's like, you know, of course it's a different experience watching at home and watching at the cinema as well. Um, you can have, I think sometimes second viewing can help you a lot. You can kind of walk out and go, I don't think very much of it, but uh, on a second home viewing, you you feel a lot more warm, warm and kindly about it. Uh, and but vice versa, you can kind of walk out kind of buzzing. But I've really enjoyed that. What watch it again? Thing, yeah, it wasn't that good. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're certainly going to hit. We're certainly going to hit that um, with. Well, we hit it with Spectre. We're going to hit the reverse for me when we get to the Tarantino series where a first viewing of a particular film in that series was a little bit underwhelming, and then on it really clicks on rewatch. So, yeah, it's interesting. We, we're yet to work a lot of these things out. We have got Star Trek worked out. We know how that series is going to be structured. But for tonight, Becca? Yeah, so anyway, this week we're kicking off our Indiana Jones review series, starting with Raiders of the Lost Ark. Starring Harrison Ford, Karen Allen, Paul Freeman, Denham Elliott, John Rhys Davies, and breaking out on his on-screen debut, Alfred Molina. Written by Lawrence Kasdan, the story by George Lucas and Philip Kaufman, amazing score by John Williams, and directed by Steven Spielberg. Released in 1981, just to make us all feel old. So guys, June what's the your... Yeah. I don't know, that's it. <laughs> so kind of summary theme going on. Yeah, what's your... Um, What's your? How did you get started with Indiana Jones? Um, what's your approach to the series? Well, I started with um, obviously being a few years older than than, than you, because obviously, just for a minute there, Becca, I was going to actually say this was released just before you were born. But thinking about it, I'm conflating the year and the date, June the twelfth, but it's eighty one. I'm thinking of its sequel, um, Temple of Doom. The reason, I, the reason being that my father uh, said to me, I was seven years old at the time. And he was talking about this film that was out and did I want to see it? And it was Temple of Doom. And he was trying to sell it to me on the basis of, do you remember the other one where, like, the guy's faces melted? Meaning the end of <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm seven. I was like, I don't want to see that. Um, but we were, back in the era, we were back in the era of video shops. And literally, I, I, I don't remember choosing it. I don't remember it being anything to do with being my choice. But we rented Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it must have been a Friday night because my parents were divorced and it would have been the weekend my father had me. Um, And we watched Raiders of the Lost Ark and I was completely blown away by it. So it must have been a couple of weeks after Temple of Doom was released because my dad had mentioned it before. 
And I went to see him the next day and I was telling him all about this film I saw last night. And he said, that's the one I've been talking about. Do you want to see the next one? And so I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark on a Friday night and the following lunchtime I watched Temple of Doom um, while it was in cinemas at the age of seven. So um, I don't remember loving more than one more than the other at the time, but I certainly remember being very, very taken with the character in the films. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's a bit of a... Well, first I would, I would probably say I think this, is like, this series is a suitable choice to come off from Bond as this was essentially... Um, Steven Spielberg desired to actually make a Bond film. Um, I think wasn't he not considered for for your eyes only? Because I think you could really debate when it was that he would have done the film. And and Bond or indie experts, and we're supposed to be a little bit of one and a lot of the other. But never mind. Uh, certainly, uh, just as a little bit of background to this film, very quickly, um, nineteen seventy seven Star Wars was released. Um, and Steven Spielberg went on holiday with George Lucas and families and basically to avoid the grosses or, or just basically they would get a call about the grosses, but they weren't there for the fallout one way or another. And they were sat on the beach waiting for the waiting for the results of that film. And it might even have been Close Encounters as well. Lost track of when Close Encounters was released. So the, the results came through. Star Wars had done extremely well, and then conversation moved on to what they were going to do next. And Steven Spielberg said to George Lucas, I really have always wanted to do a James Bond film. And George Lucas said to him, well, I've got, another, I've got this idea. And it was something he was developing before Star Wars. He always seemed to want to do a film based around these 1930s serials. Now, my understanding of these serials, and correct me if I'm wrong, either you two or any listeners is that school kids would go to the cinema on a Saturday morning and watch the next episode of, let's say, Zorro. Um, and it would always finish on a cliffhanger. And these films and the Star Wars films are meant to be sort of big screen versions of that. This film, more than Star Wars, kind of strict sticks more to the, uh, adheres to it a bit more in that this is a lot more B-movie and it's shot a lot more, or it's more overtly cheap in some places, not to its detriment necessarily. But yeah, it was George Lucas's response to Steven Spielberg saying, I'd like to do uh, a James Bond film. Now, if he said that in May 1977, the next film he could have feasibly produced would have been the one that eventually became Moonraker. But certainly it's that or For Your Eyes Only that Steven Spielberg had his eyes on. Because I think this was out the same year, wasn't it, For Your Eyes Only? Or am I getting my years mixed up? Yes, this is the same yeah, year as For Your Eyes Only. Because it's, it's, it's funny, because you think about all the, like, the, the Bond films of in that era... For your eyes only would be like the one you would probably match Spielberg to do, wouldn't it? I've just called. Uh, I've, just called I've, it, I've just called up the release date, twelve days apart. For your eyes only was released on the twenty fourth of June. This one was released on the twelfth of June. I, I don't know that any Bond films really feel particularly Spielbergian. No, 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 cool, no. But if you had to, if you had to like think about okay, which director would, if you put have to put Spielberg to direct a, a more film. A Roger Moore James Bond film, it probably would match Few Eyes Only more out of any of them. I I I, it, I, I would have thought in the terms of that classic kind of spy film. I mean, obviously it would have been different here and there, 
you know, but it's like, it's, it's a big kind of what if, isn't it? But um, I think that that would be the one that would fit the most. Um, but so There's a lot of human drama behind his films as well, isn't there? And especially with um, Fiora's ending being more grounded. Yeah. So I don't know if that's just coincidence or not, but it's, it was just something that I, 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 was, I was thinking about today before we recorded. Um, um, but in terms of indie, uh, it, again, I think, I, I didn't quite realise, I mean, I've always been a, a big Indiana Jones fan. I preferred it to Star Wars. Uh, in to be to be honest with you, not not like you know, I had any dislike for any any of them. I just I it's think, not disdain. It's just preference. Yeah, it, I, I I don't know what it, I think. It's just the grit and the and the the presence of the hero a bit more. I think it's it, I think it's just le- a lot less cheesier and a bit more kind of. Uh, it's got a little. It's got it's a bit more darker. It's a bit more. Gory. I mean, like, I mean, watching yeah. it, watching this, I was like, shit, this actually was a PG. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, and there's proper like headshots. Astonishing. And... <laughs> I thought that tonight. That is astonishing. And when we talk through the film, I'll tell you the bit that I think is astonishing. There's more than one, but there yeah, one. I think I know which bit you mean. Where I, I think just I think, know. Really? I mean, like. It's just like I mean, there, there are some parts I think that's straight off like a, an eighteen stiff horror film, you know. I mean, like, yeah, and, and this is like, in, and this is like, it's just in the opening sequence. So yeah. it's, this film would need cuts now. This film would need cuts now to get a twelve A. Well, it really would. Well, the, you could say the reason, like these sort of films, think uh, Temple of Doom, wasn't it? There was one that kind of sparked off the like, well, we need, we need, well, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. What came, uh, that kind of yeah. After that film came out, that was the kind of the start of the PG thirteen, wasn't it? And um, I think this was the first like, yeah, PG sort of like movie, um, like you know, prior to that. So I think it, it was going to be like an R, wasn't it? And they had to really cut it down. I mean, certainly, I, th- I think if you look at the 1980s, I think it's the most graphic decade we've had, really. You see more films now, pushing that envelope, don't you? Well, I mean, don't get me wrong. We've seen actual full sex in films since then, but if certainly from a violence perspective. There seemed to be some reaction to the fact that suddenly they could do these things and they were going to. Yeah. So a series we may or may not cover one day. If you think of the first Robocop film. Oh, I God, mean, that was, that was an 18 stroke R rated, but it was almost I love it, but it was almost needlessly violent in places. You think well, you put that shot in because you could. It's gratuitous. And I, I don't. I'm on the. I'm a bit. I go back and forth a bit on that a little bit. I certainly don't want to knock Robocop because I think it's terrific, but there are shots in this film. I don't think it's gratuitous, but I just think that as much as we talk about the increasing liberalisation of society, certainly cinematically, you could get away with things then that that you probably couldn't now. And whilst you can still put hard hitting stuff in there, Casino Royale, Batman Begins, they both have a lot of like punch to them. Actually, some of the blood and everything you see in this, I don't think you'd have got away with now. Um, and it's, it, it does lend to the, an interesting um, topic of why like, is like should kids see things like this? Um, and you know the whole censor, uh, censorship debate. And I've and I've I'm, I'm very kind of like easygoing because I I think we kind of try and protect kids was like oh no you can't see that oh no you're too young it's like well i think kids are a lot harder you know a lot i think they they kind of know they they, they see like blood and and that and they, and you just they just know what well, it is there's worse stuff they can see on the daily news than than what's going on in this film to be honest they can they can see much worse 
you know, on, on TV and news every day. I, I think the key word is it, it, things are, it's not manipulative in any way. I mean, like, I mean, I, it, it, it was kind of, I think one of the key things, like, cause I remember uh, a few years ago, I was watch, I was, you know, just watching old uh, um, Siskel and Ebert uh, views on YouTube. And it came to like, a, a really sort of childhood favourite, similar going favourite, I saw Robin and Prince of Thieves. Like, I loved that film when I, was, when I was growing up. I had no problem watching it. And they absolutely slated it. And the main crux of the argument, well, the, well, the main thing they picked on was the fact that uh, at, towards the end of the film, um, Anna Rickman uh, plays Sheriff Nottingham, attempts to actually rape... Um, May Marion, uh, and it was like, oh shit, yeah, they are right, but, but then again, but then again, it's like, well, okay, well, I was like, what? Uh, I wasn't. I was, you, I, what, I was barely. You, you were. You weren't even nine. When yeah, I'll, I'll probably be like about nine, eight. You you're know, about to turn nine. Yeah, your birthday's very soon, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, yeah. and I had no. I mean, obviously, I don't think I thought. In my, in, that, in my eight-year-old, nine-year-old head, I thought, hmm, rape. But you, you see, you see, like the bad guy who is who is classed the title as the villain, Boo Hiss. We don't like him, uh, forcing himself on what on 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 the female uh, protagonist. You know, and, and and we instantly know, well, that's wrong. He needs to be stopped. And and I, I've never really sort of had much of an issue with it. I don't think it's. I don't think we should sh- shield our children away from these sort of things necessarily. I, th- I think I think it's all down to like sort of context. You know, it's like if it's if the film was saying like it was, was kind of like saying it was like, yeah, it's not that bad. Then yeah, okay. But for my part, just talking about personal experience, I watched it tonight, ready for this, thinking actually you wouldn't get away with that now, and actually you wouldn't get away with that now. I went to see it in 84. Sorry, I went to see the sequel in 84, having seen this the night before. The sequel is thought of as far more violent. And I don't remember having a problem at all. And I wasn't particularly a sensitive child, but I, was, I wasn't particularly an unsensitive child either. In the two weeks before Temple of Doom was released, I've got my father there saying, oh, it's the sequel to that one where the guy's face melted off and I didn't want to see it. <laughs> You know what I mean? I wasn't yeah. into gore and yeah. horror. And as an adult, I can watch a horror film. I can appear on podcasts talking about a horror film. And we might even do the odd, odd horror series down the line. But it isn't my genre. I'm not looking for gore and to be you know, scared and upset by anything. So I am in that. I'm, I'm in, I think what I was trying to say is that in terms of my reaction to things, I was a pretty typical kid. And it's only in adulthood I've realised these films are a bit hardcore. So I think that's a long way round to saying, Chris, you're probably right. Adults worry about things kids don't even fucking notice. Yeah. And yeah, it's, I mean, like, I, mean, I do remember particularly in this film, uh, there, there was the bit where, like, uh, a snake's coming out of skeleton. I could not... I was like, I hated yeah. that. And it was like, I always hid my face. It was a long while. And the same thing happened in uh, in Crusade, which we'll get onto. Uh, what the, the, the like the transformation effect that happened at the end, and that was like very like I had the same sort. Of, I can't look at it. It's too like it's too kind of scary. Then again, mm-hmm. I had, no matter how many times I see it, I still I, have the same reaction. But then again, I had the similar sort of thing when when Mumra changed into fucking Thundercats. <laughs> so, but but the point is, as a kid, I still kind of looked away. 
you know, but it's like, you know, so if I don't want to see it, I'll, I'll, I'll look away and I'll look at the things I'm happy with, you know. If you're having nightmares six months later and it genuinely affects you so badly, then that's a different matter. But I'm kind of with Mark Kermode on this, that, like, there's actually nothing wrong with kids being scared, providing it's controlled and not too serious. You know, there, there is such a thing as, like, a, a kid-friendly, like, horror, or at least in the horror genre. Yeah. And I, yeah. I don't think... I, 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 am, I think we're looking at it now as, as a society that as much as we talk about liberalisation and, and, you know, sex and certain other things in films, maybe we have... But that PG-13 rating has got harder and harder. But at the same time, you had boobs in PG films in the 80s. And I'm not saying regularly, but it happened. But yeah, it's interesting to go back and see what the world was like in 1981. This is, this is a, a kid-friendly film, I think. But it seemed a little bit more trusting about what kids c- could or couldn't take than perhaps we are now. Like with the, the whole other, like I watched the Indiana Jones obviously the Blu-ray box set and that's when that's had a twelve rating over here in the UK. I think I think, I think the individual films are obviously now rated like um, tw- PG or twelve, aren't they? I think. Yeah, um, the the latest film's been classified as twelve, so that, that's 12, probably yeah. why. However, they, they probably have been reclassified now as a twelve. I would have thought. Sure. That's the rating everybody wants now, though. Yeah, I mean that is the rating Hollywood generally wants. It sends a certain message about what type of film it is. So, for example, Revenge of the Sith was the first Star Wars film to get anything other than a universal rating in this country, but certainly mm. like PG anywhere in the world. Attack of the Clones was a PG. Yeah, Attack of the Clones was a PG. Oh, yeah, okay, but Force Awakens was 12A, and you can pretty much guarantee pretty much every West, every Star Wars film now on yeah. will be 12A. Because that's what the studios want. And it, I mean, think about the first, even the first Star Wars, which was a U, still had like someone's getting the hand cut off, and with yeah, that's quite graphic. Yeah, with, with, yeah, with, with blood. So and when Baru got burnt to death. Well, exactly. Yeah, all the charred corpses. It's <laughs> so the charred remains, but I mean, briefly for a second, but you did see it, arguably. But you know, it's yeah. But I think kids do like that kind of stuff as well. They you know they they like being they like telling horror stories. They like being scared. They like. Doing it, like they, they like that kind of world. I mean, sometimes these horror films can be yes too much for them, but you know, I think that's part of the fun. I mean, I'm, I'm, I remember like at school and in primary school, and kids were talking about Freddy Krueger, like talking about <laughs> oh they're watching a Nightmare on Elm Street, which is like you, th- you think of that now, you think that's fucking terrifying, but they were they were <laughs> loving it. I think there was like there was there was something about kind of like yeah, you didn't quite um, just have it handed to you on a plate like oh there you go. So you kind of had to like, like find a friend, and you sneakily had it on VHS somewhere, and watch, and like go around the house and watch it, or like, watch it innocently, or or yeah, or sneak, or sneak in while your parents upstairs and watch watch it while it's on TV or something, you know. Well, that's why Chris. That that's why Never Say Never Again fucking turns me on so much. The start of it turns like sounds like a warped VHS, which just makes me think of dodgy. Dodgy seventies porn. <laughs> I get a really confused boner over Edward Fox these days. <laughs> I never look at that film in the same way again. Oh my god! But, um, yeah, but so back to Raise the Lost Ark. Uh, <laughs> we have just tan- we have just completely done a tangent, but uh... we have. I mean, I suppose the last thing to say about this film uh, before we get into it is it, it has very B movie origins, and I think that's even more true next week in terms of some of uh, there's scenes I'm going to point to next week that are very, very B-movie. Um, 
Steven Spielberg had had one of his notorious flops, and there aren't many. Um, 1941. Bloated, ran over, didn't do that well. Because Steven Spielberg's not generally that great at comedy. Now, Jaws, a big success though it was, had run long and had run expensive. So at this point, there was still some skepticism about whether Steven Spielberg could be a prudent filmmaker, could could actually deliver on time and on budget, which is kind of where George Lucas comes in, because George Lucas, for all his flaws, is very good at that sort of thing. Now, um, this film was made for $18 million. All of the studios turned it down. Paramount eventually said yes. Um, part of it was the belief that they that was impossible. You couldn't do a film of this scope for $18 million. So this is, for its era, bear in mind the Bond film that was released this year cost nearly $28 million, relatively low budget, relatively. So this is, this is a quick film made in a very sort of TV style. And um, that needs to be borne in mind when you watch it. There are, a few, think... there are a few uh, moments as well um, where they use a couple of cast members twice in different roles and you can see they have taken some um and there are a lot of um this film definitely there's a lot of what's it called like stock footage used as well where he's tried to save money i do actually my bio personal history because i i do have like a certain fondness for it because I, I do particularly remember the days when it was on itv um yeah this yeah well, yeah no. i think i think that's kind of how i how i sort of came to it like... a similar story of, of like bond as well sort of like watching it on itv on bank holiday and I, I didn't well, think I until they were issued like a couple of years well a few years ago now I never kind of saw them on the big screen and so it was kind right. of like watching it you know through on ITV on a bank holiday so that's kind of like my way into the series. But um, yeah, but anyway, it was on it was on it was on ITV and it was like that time where like I always split the film because you have the news at ten and, and and it was because I was only at like that certain age. It was alright bedtime, so I've always got to, always got to like the certain point a bit where like <laughs> my, my is supposed to be killed. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like I was like oh but I've always it's like it's always been known as the film that I've only seen half of until like <laughs> until, until one night parents let me stay up and watch it and I was like oh fine then I get to see the whole thing um, but, but yeah but it's always been like it's always been a favourite it's always been like um, grown up you know uh, Last Crusade was a cinema watch for me um, I didn't even I think I found out about Temple of Doom um quite late on. I mean, I think I cut it on BBC Two uh, like halfway through, thought shit, they did another one! Um, and I didn't even realise, so... Um, but yeah, and yeah, I've always kind of had a, a very special fondness for the series. I think it's probably along the... It, it probably up there with Bond, for me, if, they, if there was more of them. But, you know, it, it, this this series does have like a special place in my heart, and you know, I, 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 do, I do love the three films, and I'm still going to classify them as three films, because... <clears throat> we'll get to fourth in a little bit. Uh, yeah, but, uh, the less said about that, the better. But yeah, um, so well, we're yeah. gonna have to say something about. We're gonna have to say something about it. Fucking short podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, um, right, uh, Becca, do you want anything more to add before we uh, enjoy the film sequentially? Um, no, that's pretty much it, really. I mean, I think well, as far as I'm concerned, my reading around the film, I think Dave, you're absolutely right. This is kind of basically a homage to the kind of Flash Gordon, um, Zorro kind of. Start you know, boys' own adventures of, of the twenties, thirties, and forties, um, and again, it's a kind of it's. It, I'm, I'm quite glad that we're doing this series after Bond, as a kind of obviously they follow they follow on from each other, um, and yeah, this as you said before, this is pretty much Spielberg and Lucas's way of making a Bond film. It's kind of like their love letter 
I mean, you know, in, in the next film, we see Harrison Ford in a white tuxedo for crying out loud. So, which is very exciting. And in a way, they can they can have their own pre credit sequences as well, kind of. They, I mean, they, they not, they're not pre credit, but they, they kinda... don't go to a song, but they yeah. are like a prologue. Yeah, they, they, yeah, they, definitely. They are literally like uh, oh, like they 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 um they always begin on like kind of a big set piece, so to speak. Uh, yeah, or, or a big adventure of some sort. And next week's is phenomenal. It's amazing. I think that also it has a. Lot, I think it's it's probably one that gave gave us like one of the archetype action heroes as well. Um, because I, I, I mean, I, people who know me on Twitter or on this podcast even will know that I'm a big Die Hard fan. Um, and the whole aesthetic of like the real the real guy uh, who's you stuck in a situation he doesn't want to be in gives that hum, humanity aspect and. Indy Making had, it up as you go along, yeah. I think, is part of it as well. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, and Indy has that sort of, he's world-weary, he's like, he, he strikes me as like, the, he's, he's the guy who's doing all, all this kind of action stuff, he's fighting off Nazis and whoever, but he, you never get a sense that he's, he wants to actually be there. It's like, when he, when he gets involved in a fight, there's always like a, oh, for fuck's sake. No, there's like a... <laughs> It's like, oh god, I'm just, I'm just, I just want to lie down. If anything, but you know, but he just gets on with it, and I think that just adds to the, the charm because what we we had in the eighties were kind of like big sort of superhero kind of Arnie, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, they all look like He Man figures. Yeah, which is fine. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I like them for what they are, but I think this adds this added something like a little bit more special that uh, I think paved the way for, like, say, Bruce Willis in Die Hard. Um, adds more depth, doesn't yeah. it? As well, I mean, you've got somebody like Bond who's kind of like essentially like Superman. Um, but you've got somebody like India as well. He's like, who, point. Yeah. Well, no, yeah. He's, he's, <laughs> you know what I mean, though. He's kind of, you know, he's basically invincible. Like well, the Rod, in the Roger Moore era, and in the Pierce Brosnan era, but certainly the era we're talking about, where these films started to come out. Yeah, anything seemed... Bond did, he was the best in the world at. Yeah, that's yeah, that's basically my point. And you also me like Indy, who's basically kind of like not kind of every man, but I mean, he's he's an adventurer, yes, but he's also a university professor as well. So he's and he's quite sort of self-effacing as well. I mean, he's kind of, you know, he's up himself a little bit, but at the same time, compared to, um, contrasted to somebody like, um, like Karen Allen's character, for example, he's kind of quite feisty and quite independent, even though he's being rescued all the time. But yeah, it's kind of like a nice juxtaposition. And I think, yeah, without Indiana Jones, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have people like John McClane or, they, you know, those sort of characters, I think. I think it, I think it proved somebody who wasn't absolute. I mean, we're talking it about... It wasn't like a Superman-type character. No, when we get into the fight scenes, um, I, I'm going to hold my fire on that because we'll get to the, some of the fight scenes and I'll talk more about it then, but there's something included in the style that really speaks to that. Oh, sure, definitely. No, so well, what I kind of noticed up particularly was the kind of like little sort of touches of comedy in there as well. It's just very slight, but you, you, you realise just how, like, how well-balanced it is. I mean, uh, you, you think about... Com- like the comedy, the comedy moments it has in some some of the fights or like or certain sort of tense scenes, but it just adds just a little bit, little nice little touches to it. You know, but much like in Harrison Ford's like moment where he's like he's fighting, but he's almost like kind of like stumbling like clumsily a little bit. Let's discuss this film sequentially. <laughs> At <Really>? last, <laughs> finally. So yeah, we kick off in the Timor expedition in South America in 1936, mm, going through the jungle. Yeah, this is South America in 1930, uh, 1936. The first thing I notice is uh, we have the Paramount logo. I don't know if it's the Paramount logo they were using at the time or whether they delivered a, used a deliberately aged one. I honestly don't know what they were using at this point. Um, but 
the first thing I thought of when I watched them walking through the jungle is Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, because as much as I don't want to talk about that film much now, <laughs> it looks like they're there, which isn't the case when we come to Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. No. Everything feels kind of real. Yeah, they're actually there. I mean, it's like a physical location. I mean, the one thing I noticed, also, I don't want to talk about it now, but like Crystal Skull looks incredibly green screen, you know, blue screen, just fake from here, there and everywhere. But with this one, they're actually, I think, is it, is this somewhere in Hawaii? I'm not quite sure whether it was on the special features, but I cannot remember what they said. No, I don't think it actually was actually in um, South America. I mean, listeners, correct me if I'm wrong, but they kind of, I mean, for the most part on these sort of locations, they try to make it sort of real and as physical as they can rather than using green screen. Oh, yeah, I mean, Ky- Cairo later is not shot in Cairo. Um, no, it's probably like Marco I don't or remember like where, they, where they shot this. They tried to shoot on, on a location as much as possible. And it really sells it straight away. And even the font type they use to give you the stars of the film, that's the font type they'll use right the way through to and including Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And I like it. It's got a slightly classic, stately feel to it. Yeah, this kind of slowly build him up as well. That you know, he's, he's just kind of like this sort of shabby figure in a hat. Uh, you didn't see his, you know, his face like, straight away, do you? Doesn't that no. remind you of Bond though? Because think of Doctor No, where you were seeing his yeah. hands and him taking cards out. Or George Lazenby and mm. and Majesties as well. You just kind of George see like his sunglasses. As well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the first glimpse of him when he sort of like whips the uh, is it is it a gun out of someone's hand? Or is yeah, because yeah, there's four of them to start with. There's him and Satipo yeah. and the other two we don't n- learn the names of. It does confuse me when they get to the biplane, and I'm thinking, well, how did they carry four of them then? But anyway, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, perhaps the two Indy might have met them there. To be fair, that's fine. But there's four of them. One gets scared off when he it, it's like a load of uh, pigeons. <laughs> double taking pigeons double taking pigeons because <laughs> that would scare the shit out of me yeah, he ran away one of them ran away and the other one was effectively the equivalent of a double agent and pulls a gun on Indy and Indy, we see Indy for the first time after he releases his whip that's my whip sound effect <laughs> it's great <laughs> but I, I, I think that reveal is wonderful and, and it, I have a bit of a toss up between this and next week and we'll talk about that next week but as much as this, this is one of the iconic introductions though the way he steps out of the shadows it's just it's just classically done it's just like I mean it, it, it's difficult to even put into kind of to even kind of come up because we're just so used to it it's embedded in our like history growing up you know would you agree chris that because you when you look at something like the spy who loved me he skis off the edge of a cliff and that's like oh my god he's going to die as like partridge said once you've seen that (laughs) a few times it's still an impressive stunt but you don't feel anything because this sequence has nothing like that i don't think it loses its effect in the same way i still think you get oh that's really good he's like he's still he, he he looks cool uh he, you know, it, it sells you on the character, and I think it, it kind of, it it kind of the film kind of like adds to it more as you go. I mean, in this whole um, set piece, you kind of feel it, but more like he's, he, when you first introduce him, he's very much like a always oh, a badass, and then you kind of get a bit more like well, you know, he's a bit of a know all. He knows what he knows exactly what he's doing, but there's a world weariness to him, and then there's like a then then he gets to the uh, the, the the statue thing, and then there's that kind of like little comedy element where he, where he, where he thinks he's got away with it, and it's like, oh shit. <laughs> and he's adjusting and he, his hat. It's a, bit, yeah. it's a bit like Daniel Craig landing in the carriage in Skyfall and doing his cuffs. 
Yeah. It's kind yeah. of right for the character. And, I mean, you've got Alfred Molina there. For those of you listening who can't immediately place him, he's probably best known as Doc Ock in Spider-Man 2. This was his screen debut. He's probably about 30 at the time. I don't actually know his exact age. Uh, but he wasn't, young, he, he wasn't he? very old. It was his first um, sequel. He's there to help Indy, um, but he's effectively double-crossing him. Yeah, because uh, well, after the whole, like, he gets the, the statue, the boulder, like, comes along, he survives the boulder, and then they have to uh, jump across that pit thing, don't they? And, and he's like, yeah, really... like... throw him in the idol. Yeah. That really does uh, betray its B-movie origins, in that none of that is remotely realistic. Now, if you were watching, if you were watching most films, you'd say, well, that's ridiculous. But it's got a sort of pulp origin to it that if this was a serial, they might well have built up the um, approach to that room much more over an episode. And we'd have got the cliffhanger of that plate dropping and Indy suddenly being trapped. That probably would have been a cliffhanger and you'd have had to go and see the second episode next week. That kind of explains the Star Wars. Exactly. So it re- it it's not remotely realistic. It's not trying to be. That's its serial origins. Having said that scene, I mean that it's been par- parodied like thousands of times. Oh, the hat. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, so, yeah, I mean Simpsons, Family Guy, hundreds of different you know um, cultural pop cultural references like South Park, any other sort of like TV shows. It's you know it's it's some of the most, I think it's just it's amazing iconic scenes in the whole of cinema really. It's just decadent to like the the series as a whole, really, because it's you know everyone knows what you're talking about. You know, where, where you see the you know like I mean I think Family Guy and, and things like that do kind of reference any part of it, any any part of it. The whole uh, the hand, the, the the whole throw me the idol, you give me the whip, and the you know the whole grab the hat thing. Uh, there's probably a dozen things that I can't even think of right now. So yeah, but so basically, uh, Indy manages to get like jump across and just manage to get out of get out of the place. Then he sees um, Alpha Mina quite horrifically dead. He gets impaled, <laughs> doesn't he? It's a bit grim. I think yeah, that's what we I... may have been getting at when, in the sort of um, graphic nature of films of this era. Yeah. The, that was where I thought it, because there is... There, there, it's repeatedly referred to during this sequence that if you get it wrong, spikes will impale you. And he's impaled through his neck and the yeah. top of his forehead. His eyes are wide as well. It would it would almost the blood itself would, would struggle with its rating now. But it's almost partly that his eyes are wide open as well. So it's it's also, very very freakish. Earlier in that sequence as well, we kind of see because he's obviously following in the footsteps of um his former colleague Forrester, and he obviously he didn't make it as far as Indy has. And we kind of see that he's you know, he's been a victim of this um you know, he's been caught by all the traps and that beforehand, and they, they stumble across his like chested corpse, which is a bit gross. You just think, oh, it's a grim. But I mean, the, the effects, all the in-camera effects, and like the, the hair and the makeup, um, and these kind of models and everything—it's just it's amazing. I just, you don't, uh, obviously, we have a lot of CGI model films these days, um, but that's what I love about films of like, sort of like seventies, like eighties and nineties. You get a lot of like real, like models that you can you can touch and you can feel and you can see that they don't look CGI. Yeah, I mean, you can laugh at like the the, the quality of it. Or well, look, they're obviously fake. It's obviously made out of rubber. But oh, obviously, me, like, obviously. But 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 those things still like look ten times more real to me than like anything that a computer can make. Exactly, know? exactly. It's like, it's like 
it's like to refer back to Star Wars, like uh, the the puppet Yoda. Even though I can tell it's a puppet, I'd still believe that's a real thing because it is a real thing. You know, yeah. as opposed to the CGI thing. Which... I think what I would say on that, Chris, is the 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 origins of this film are cheap. If there was CG around then, to the same standard we have now, it would probably be unsatisfying because they're not doing it expensively. And poor CG is normally lack of time or lack of money. We sat and talked about Skyfall only a few weeks ago where there was an effect where uh, Judy Denger stood in an office with it raining on the window. And none of us could believe that wasn't real. And it wasn't. Most CG you see in films, you wouldn't know. When we talk about CG and how it doesn't look real, we're talking about poor CG. But at the same time, um, in in any kind of cheaper production, and we'll talk about that when we get to Marvel, I think, as well, the CG is never very good. The work here is innovative, and and it's impressive, and it's it's all real. Yeah, I, I, I think I just prefer, like, the real grit and the dust to it. I think it's one of the issues I had with the fourth film, was, like, I always picture an indie film to, like, just be surrounded by dust and it's earthy, the action it's is It's lived just, in, doesn't it? We lived in Yeah, it's, it's, it's very practical, whereas it was just... It just, you know, when I saw Crystal Skull, it, it Yeah, wasn't... but what I'm saying is, done properly, Chris, you can't always tell. Yeah. There are films no. and TV shows with CG in it we would never register has CG in it. But I will say, I think it depends. It's like it's a, a little CG goes a long way. Uh, I think if if you if you base your whole film around everything, where everything. Well, yeah, George Lucas's entire set was like yeah. a green screen, yeah. and maybe a little table. That's not good. <laughs> yeah. That's too much. Yeah. The exactly. blend does work better, I think. Definitely, as Jurassic Park would prove, because uh, you know, the, yeah, into this day that T Rex, you know, that 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 doesn't get much real than that, and the, and the, the stuff of the Raptors, um, it you know it, it's kind of like a mixture of both practical and and CGI. And when you use that, then it's magic. And that film so, still holds uh, up today, and that's you know, it's obviously getting on now, even with you know, four four films in the works. So it's um, and that still holds up today. But yeah, so we've we've got this whole sequence where he recovers a gold idol. Uh, Satipo is killed and he basically escapes a boulder which is again B-movie origins will he escape this boulder because none of this would be there in anything like this but mm. we get introduced to Belloc who is basically he's basically what the man of the, with the golden gun was trying to do he's the dark side of Indy yeah he's like the anti-Indy he says later on you know I'm on the dark shadow of you it won't take much for you to make me like you know make you the same as I am sort of thing. He's basically yeah, a darker reflection of Indy, isn't he? Yeah, he's um, he, he, he kind of, he, rather than kind of get his hands dirty, he, tra- he kind of just outplays him. He's always like one step ahead of him. So it's, other people do dirty work for him. Yeah, and he's always, you know, but there's also like an intelligence to him because the whole uh, reference of like, well, I know the languages, you know, maybe you could... Then you spoke Covitos. Yeah, you know, so there's there's that element that was just kind of like he makes him a more formidable villain, you know. Um, but also, he, he, this is the only scene where he comes off as really, really evil. I think in the rest of the film, he, he, you know, he, 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 he's kind of humanised somewhat. Uh, uh, but... Just after Marion's killed, I, I would say that scene that they have in the bar there where Indy's a bit drunk, 
I would say he's fairly evil then. But after that, where you see him with Marion and you see him with his sort of Nazi overlords, he's, yeah, I would agree he's completely humanised. Yeah, I mean, he's probably just, he goes from being a, an evil Nazi to a bit of a lech, and that's about it. So. Well, he's, he's just like, it's, it's nothing you sort of sell, like, because when in, when in he's like, gets away and he, he's running away and he's there, like, kind of laughing, cackling, proper, like... No, but yeah, it's e- crazy. Yeah, it's probably the most evil laughs ever. You think, oh, Christ, this guy is proper OTT evil. Mm. And then the rest of the film doesn't reflect one. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. But, but yeah, it's, it's probably but it's kind of, I mean, he's, he's a good actor, but I think they're kind of, that, that's the one the one weak link in this film not that I have many criticisms of this film perhaps but um, and performance as a whole I think is, is brilliant but that's probably like the one weak link in this movie uh, he's, more ta- he's more talented than Indy uh, you, you think about you know you watch a fight with or a fight with a couple of boxers or, or any sporting event where it's like one on one and it finishes with one of them looking you know you see photos where like one of them looks completely fucked and the other one yeah. looks fresh as a daisy and that <laughs> is kind of what this is Indy has to like really work hard at this stuff, and Belloc is just well, it's all right. I'll pay that person off, and I'll follow you, and then I'll just let you do all the work and grab it from you. Yeah, he's, he's quite suave, and he pays other people to do it Belloc, for him. Yeah, Belloc doesn't have to work as hard at this as Indy does. No, yeah, because he's cause he's like uh, it, way smarter than Indy. He's you know outplays him. Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah, that's smart him. So, I think definitely. So it's just sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. But anyway, yeah. So um, he gets uh, he gets chased by by a load of tribesmen. And, oh, and, uh, yeah, and then he, yeah. Well, what what's that sound effect? It goes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and then yeah, and then he then he finds. Uh, was it Jock? Isn't, isn't that the film's producer? Is uh, Frank Marshall? Actually, it is, and I think it might be. Actually, I know Frank Marshall quite well, but I didn't really pay much attention at the time. He's got a plane on the water, and he's fishing. And he start the <laughs> he's engine, not, start the engine, engine. And, and there is dust flying off him, and he's <laughs> running like fuck, being chased by hundreds. I mean, if you weren't sold on this film by now, I, I, what do you want from a film? This guy is just <laughs> totally every man. He's trying to do something extraordinary. We're going to find out after this. Well, I don't know if he's referred to as indie at this point, but obviously any sort of um, pre-hype for this film would have referred to Indiana Jones. And we find out that's kind of not his name. He's Henry Jones. Um, this, is almost a su- this is almost a superhero persona, but he's a bit crap at it. And I, <laughs> But he isn't. He's brilliant with a whip. He's fantastic in a fist fight. But he's not. none of it's easy. So you buy peril at every point. Uh, yeah, I think what, it's great. what 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 sells Indy though is whereas Belloc is a lot more smarter, Indy is a lot more resilient. Uh, he's he just he's like he's that fighter just won't like stay down. Oh, it, you know, it's one of the best lines in the film. We'll get to it later where he says, "It's not the years, honey. It's the mileage." Yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, it's just and it is very Bond-like because. Bonds are normally in their forties. They're normally they've normally seen more of their career than we ever saw of their career, and is the same is true as it of Indy. He's been at this a few years. The 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 hat, the jacket, it's all bashed up a bit. He's been doing and this it, a while. And this whole um, this whole opening sequence sets up his character perfectly. Like you you, you can what you, you, everything you need to know essentially about his character 
is is pretty much in within that that opening five, six, seven minutes, however long it is. You you, you know everything you need to know about him. It's like you, you start off him and he's very cool, calm, confident. Get get with the whip with the. He's not easily scared, the, but we find yeah. he's scared of snakes. He is intelligent in that he does look for booby traps in the room and all the rest of it. So we know he's smart, but the very fact he thinks he's got it and he hasn't tells you that he's going to spend the film making it up as he goes along a little bit. It's absolutely perfect. He knows not really to trust anyone. In that a gun is pulled, he must have heard the slightest noise behind him, but he already knew instinctively one of his three guides or one of his three assistants was betraying him. So he's, he's nobody's fool. He's been doing this a while, but it's all going to be rough and ready and make it up as you go along. I just love the fact it starts off with him being like cool, like really cool, and then it ends with him kind of like going, "I hate snakes." That's a snake in my. <laughs> you know, it, it, it kind of just plays up that kind of like level of humor as well with that, you know, that kind of rough and readiness, as you say. Um, and you know, the whole sequence itself is classic. You, it's like it's a, when you see the boulder. I mean, back then that was like very throwback to the thirties. Now it's iconic to the series. You know, you see the boulder, you think indie. You know, yeah, the two go together, don't they? Really, it's like with Jock's line, you know, come on, show a bit of backbone. It's like, well, he's just escaped from a load of, you know, (laughs) vicious tribesmen trying to shoot poison darts at him. It's like, geez, you know, (laughs) yeah, I mean, that that, that whole scene, I mean, as I say, it's been parodied in lots of different pop culture references, TVs, films. It's just homage to it, and that's now just become, you know, totally iconic within that series. You can't help but see that image and immediately think of, you know, immediately think of the series. So, so where do we we go from there then? Well, when we cut, we cut to the university now. And he's, he's lecturing. I only really noticed this tonight because I've always noticed the girl who's written I love you on her eyelids to basically close her eyes in front of him. There's a lot of female but, students in that class. I think yeah, it's obviously all, obvious reason. You can tell the direction because they're all wrapped in what he's saying. I, all of them. All I'd of quite the like to be in his class, for sure. If you watch, well, why not? Um, but he, they are all absolutely hanging on his every word. So that's clearly direction from Spielberg. But he's 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 a professor, and that's not what you would have expected if you knew nothing about this film. So there's an academic bent to it, which I love. Um, we get we see Denham Elliot, who I'm assuming is effectively the same as Jim Broadbent's character. He's the dean, I would think. Yes. Um, but yeah, basically, Indy goes off on these adventures, comes back with whatever he can get, not always what he's sent out for. The university, we're told, by them, no questions asked. So he's very trusted where he is. Apparently, in the novelization of this film, the woman who's got I Love You written on her eyelids was having an affair with him. So he wasn't above um, mm. sleeping with his students. I'm glad they dropped that. Yes, that would have been very dodgy. Well, it would, particularly with what's coming up with Marion. I think that yes. it, it conjures up too much of an abuse of trust and a sort of underage sex thing even though they're probably not underage. It's all just wrong. Uh, apparently in the novelisation as well, there's, there's, it's hinted that they kind of they knew each other when they were kind of in, in their teens. And there's a bit of, hmm, you know, a bit dodgy. Uh, yeah, we'll get to the Marion scene in a minute, because yeah. you could certainly argue he took advantage. But I think it's meant to be a bit more throwaway than that. Oh, sure, yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, there's, there's definitely, I mean, when you see them on screen together, there's no, there's no air of seediness or no. anything like that, so... I just I just assumed they were a similar age anyway, so it's like okay, she was young, but so is he. 
know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, te- they're ten years apart in real life. Bear in mind, you wouldn't know it. He, he worked under Abner Raid- Ravenwood. Sorry, he studied under and Abner Ravenwood at the University of Chicago. We're told. Um, bear in mind, he's a professor. I don't think he was probably as an undergraduate, but even if it was as an undergraduate, that takes him into his early twenties. And she complained she was merely a child. Mm. In real life, Karen Allen is. 30 at this point and Harrison Ford is about I'm trying to think 38 at this point so there's a few years between them but I I don't want to get too hung up on it I know that I know that there is an element of there's previous that's all that really matters but he's taken in by Denham Elliott to meet with two people now are they from the government or the CIA or what I think they are government, aren't they? Because yeah. at the end they speak, obviously, when the, when the art's kind of taken away, it's like, top men, Mr. Did Jones. You did you recognise either of them? I know uh, one is Porkins. Yeah. One is Porkins, but you may not... Ju- he wasn't just Porkins. William Hootkins was also in Batman 1989. <gasps> yeah, he was yes, Eckhart. Yes, he was. Yeah. Yeah. Think about the future. But, and um, he also narrated a um, when the remake of Psycho came out, they had... Um, was it like audiobook of the original story? And he also he read that as well. So that's where I know him from as well. And they've got this. They we're introduced to Indy. We're told he's professor. We're told he's uh, an expert in the occult, and we're told that he's a co- collector of rare artifacts. We're also told that he worked with an Abner Ravenwood, and the Nazis have been communicating with Cairo, and they've intercepted something that says find Abner Ravenwood because of the staff of Ra? Yes. Yeah. So they go to talk to Indy because Indy is not only an expert, but he's the only link to Abner Ravenwood. Abner Ravenwood's gone missing. There's a deleted scene that says that um, when he meets Marion, there is a deleted scene that explains that Abner Ravenwood is dead and she talks a little bit about how he died. That's not canon, just as Mr. White in Quantum Dying isn't because he turned up later. So Abner Ravenwood what could have appeared in the series and still could, I suppose. But um, at this point, that's why they're looking for him. They're not looking for him. They're looking for Abner. Did, did, did you not say that he, he died a long, long time? Or, was that, or did that kind of get that? I don't away? think it's in the final cut. I've, I've, I've always remembered. I mean, maybe I need to watch it again. But so, Well, put it this way. When we get to Crystal Skull and they announced that they'd cast John Hurt, all of the rumours was that he was Abner Ravenwood. Oh, okay. Now, whether that would have been, well, we thought he was dead and he's not, I don't know. But the fact is, when he turned out to be Harold Oxley, that was a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you would have thought it would have been... I, I was assumed that he was dead anyway, so I, you know... Um, but that kind of left like a bit of a chip on uh, Marion's shoulder. I mean, we introduced to Marion, and we're told well, we can kind of see that she's a fucking hardcore drinker. If anything, she is. She's a superpower. She can drink. She can drink anyone under the table. She's a giant man, man mountain like that bloke that she beats. Well, which I always thought was a fat woman. Um, <laughs> but it, it was, uh, and I don't mean any offence by that. I just wasn't quite sure which gender it was. But he has the greatest drunk pass out. When she's captured later by Belloc, she obviously tries to sort of drink her way out of the scenario. So yes. it, it is characterization. But basically, she runs a bar in Nepal, and, which is in the middle of nowhere in the snow. 
and she basically spends her evening having drinking competitions. Everyone clears out quite quickly, though, don't they? Right, <laughs> it's packed. Right, I'm done now. Fuck off. Off we go. Yeah, it does empty really quickly. But I, I love that scene, obviously, when he's sort of flying from location to location because you get to see kind of obviously there's lo- there's lots of historical inaccuracies in this film. There's a lot of technology that's shown in the film that wasn't around then, like clothing, uni- uniforms, countries. Either. No, exactly. But I, I do love that kind of the thirty-star map, and you get to see well, kind of old previous names of countries and things like that. Um, I don't know if either of you um, played any of of the you know, Joe's like computer games, the kind of like role-play games, things like that. Um, listeners, you might have done as well. Um, I think there was an old like Windows ninety-five game of the Last Crusade when it came out. When it came out, um, that kind of like old old-star maps, and I, I, I just sort of say that I quite like the visuals um, when he makes his flight from. You know, from Chicago what I like to... about it, Becca, is it, it's more, um, it's gradier than the rest of the sequences we see. It is, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's my Blu-ray or my LCD TV, but it's quite grainy. It's meant to look aged compared to it. Yeah. They do fly over countries that, you know, weren't that country till years later or whatever. No. Uh, what so they do seem now to get was Vietnam, so it's also Indochina. Like, lack of direct flights as well. They were, it does yeah. <laughs> go through different places. I really love it. It's one of the one of the parts of this series, although I can't watch it now without thinking of the Muppets. Yes. <laughs> Travelling by map. <laughs> Travelling by map, yeah, that's great. It's wonderful. Yeah. It really is great though. Well, it's the same same feeling it's the same feeling of like a Bond movie as well, isn't it? Because you kind of obviously know, you know, from the sixties when um oh god, when air travel was just taking off, um and there's a package holidays and stuff, but now you still it's still going on an adventure, even though like twenty years on audiences are much better travelled than how they were in the sixties. You're still going on an adventure, aren't you? Travelling to kind of countries that the it average person well, I've I've, 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 I've never been to Nepal, have you? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I've, I've been exactly. to Cairo, but you know, somewhere a remote area of you know, that country you perhaps I've, might not visit, so and, and they they chose a, a country not many people would have been through and yeah it was it, yeah, exactly. yeah, I think it, I think your point's valid and it, it looks great as well uh, I mean even though it's like a very limited we basically see like an outside of a bar and then the inside of a bar but you, you get the the atmosphere and the impression that you know of what Napoleon is looks very sort of hazardous very very windy very cold lot of yeah, snow very, very, very forbidding it's very atmospheric uh, and then. Uh, what what struck me is like the, the visuals in this. I mean, um, when again when like when everyone's left and Marion's there, like sort of putting everything away, you just see like the the shadow of Indy with the top hat, you know, just cover. And it's just it just it's like oh, that's not like a, a typical kind of you bog standard in, introduction to the character entering the scene. That's that's very kind of like well, anyone the, anyone would recognize recognize his silhouette instantly that's not true of james bond as much it's more like darth vader he's much more defined by the costume i mean we see bond in tuxes we see him in lounge suits and we sometimes see him in something more casual but rarely um indy is much more of an archetype he is his his outfit he's not really indy when he's when he's at the university in the same way so yeah, no. it's a wonderful sequence, and it seems obvious now. We don't think about it, but Steven Spielberg thought we'll have Marion there and his his outline on the wall behind her. That seems quite, so obvious. Quite an iconic scene, isn't it? It's absolutely terrific. And and particularly, this is like the the essentially the first film with this character. It's like like it, it, he's yeah, iconic just... before he, he, they've made him iconic before he's had the screen time necessary to become iconic. 
Yeah, I think it's just like an interesting shot to do. You know, you, you could you could have just played that any old way when it just seemed entering a room or hear, hear his voice and Marion turn around and there he is. But no, it's, it's just like another little touch and we get to see it again uh, with the fighting, you get to see two shadows fighting. It's, you know, it's... It, it's just like another step for Spielberg to actually show like, no, we'll, we'll, we'll do like left field choice, we'll do something interesting or something a bit more visual. Um, and it, it just looks great. It was one of, the, one of the things that sort of really stood out on this watch. Marion is pissed off at Indy, um, probably rightly so. She's like, well, fuck you, I'm not going to give you the the thing, you know, I don't know where it is, where she clearly has it all the time. Um, <laughs> and, and She's not giving tell, up a little fight, is she? Well, no, basically tells him to, like, to bugger off or... or or, or, or come see him tomorrow when she's had time to actually think about what she's going to do, and then uh, we get introduced to our first villain. Well, not the first, but the second villain. Um, what's uh, what's what, what's what's the character's name? He's Is never it? named. In, he's never named uh, in the film. But he's. I, 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 apologies if I pronounce it wrong because it's T O H T Tote, I believe. Yeah, Major Tote, isn't it? So it's... Now, I, I actually said this tonight to, to both of them, and both of my co-hosts here, and one of them got it and the other one didn't. Um, oh. I won't say which way round, but if you don't recognise him, you wouldn't be alone. He was the baby-eating bishop of Bath and Wells in Blackadder. <laughs> in the last ten years of his life, his weight fluctuated, to be fair. Um, but it is unrecognisable as the same guy, and he is astonishingly, astonishingly creepy. He's like one of the most creepiest Nazis ever. I mean, well, there's a scene later on, we'll get to it, but he has like the most terrifying coat hanger in all of movie history. Well, he's the most iconic Gestapo uh, next to um, Heflick in Hello, Hello. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm trying to think, Hello, Hello came out the following year. I do wonder if Heflick's based on him. Yeah, probably. It must be to some degree because it's so similar. But it's even little things like he coughs at one point where Marion blows it, blows smoke in his face, yeah. and it's like this kind of weaselly. <coughs> that should suggest weakness, but it doesn't. It just suggests creepy. Yeah, I think it's just like he's not that person. Not a person who smokes. He's not used to the, the lifestyle. But he is. He's just very kind of lecherous. And the whole, I think you know, it's like uh, when he when he first sent in, he's like, "Oh, we are not this," oh, you know. Yeah, uh, it's almost like a. <laughs> just think about it. It's almost like a. What's his face? Um, what was it Peter? Yeah, Peter Lorre. Uh, yeah, Peter he Lorry. is meant to be, evoke Peter Lorre. Yeah, and he does. Um, yeah, and, and yeah, what 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 really strikes me because even even after that that little bit where like uh, Marion is still kind of very like very strong minded and very confident, blows smoke in his face, he coughs. You think, you know, it's, it's again it's another little comic little thing there, but instantly he turns very kind of, your fire is dying. Uh, why don't you tell us where the you know? Yeah. It's like he's getting he's getting ready to go full torture mode. Well, Becca, it? when we spoke earlier off offline, you mentioned about his first line when he walks into the bar. Yeah, he's like, oh, we're not thirsty. But it's the way he says it, because that's a nothing line. Of, it, is it? it yeah, it's all about the intonation. It says, we're not thirsty. It's just like, oh, my God. Yeah, if, if someone says, what are you here for? Can I get you a drink? We're not thirsty. That's nothing. But the way he says it is genuinely unsettling. He's kind of laughing. He's kind of like, sort of like laughing at the halfway. <laughs> we're not thirsty. It's, uh, yeah. But she do better impression than I do. <laughs> <laughs> He said, there's no point living if you can't feel alive. <laughs> I 
can't I can't do impressions <laughs> from this series, so I've got to reach back a bit. And by reach back, I don't mean anything dodgy. Really? <laughs> I borrowed. Of course, not, Dave. We, we wouldn't think of anything more for you. Um, so, um, yeah. So basically, she, uh, speaking of innuendos, uh, he's about to uh, give her a hot poker. <laughs> oh god, we just flash back to Bishop of Bath and Wales, isn't it? Yeah. It's poker time. Bend over, Blackadder. It's poker <laughs> time. <laughs> yeah, so um, Indy uh, comes out of nowhere and uh, gets the whip and, and flings it away, which which in, initially, well, not intentionally, but sets fire to the place. And there's a big uh, big fist fight, machine gun, uh, gun fight. Mm. Um, the person I'd like to name, and it. It sounds silly, but it's the improvisation. And most of this is actually Spielberg, not Harrison Ford. Spielberg keeps the camera moving. He keeps lots of different things happening in the same room. It's more true when we get to Cairo later. But I was watching these fights and I couldn't help but think of Jackie Chan. Now, it's not Kung Fu or Karate or whatever it is Jackie Chan does. Apologies for my ignorance there. But there is an element of use the environment around you and improvise, and there's a little bit of humour in it as well. And that's how Indiana Jones fights. Yeah. It's just... I, what also what struck me about this fight scene was just the little what little things that seem like incidental, like when uh, Tower picks up the medallion that's that's been hot because it's like been sitting next to fire burns his hand and it just seems like an, like oh that's just going to be like a throwaway thing he's got it's vital yeah it turns out to be vital later on and it's just such a smart I felt I thought that that is so that is really smart storytelling um, and you, you, you when you first you see it watch it the first time you think nothing of it and it comes back later on and it makes complete sense for those of you who haven't picked it up because I didn't for a few years he he burns his hand on the sort of top of the... what's going to go on the top of the staff. And the Nazis use that to create, effectively, a copy. Yeah, because it's an imprint, isn't it? It's an the... imprint on his hand, because the scar is so deep, because he's burnt himself so badly. And they've used it and translated the letters that are on it to tell them what to do, because the letters on, on, on it tell you what to do. Not knowing that, that, that it's double-sided eventually they end up digging in the wrong place because they don't have the information on the other side that Indy gets when he's got the real thing. They're digging on the wrong side. Yeah. I didn't pick that up for yeah. years, and, and I, I dare say, and don't worry, you don't have to admit it to friends and family, there'll be those of you listening to this who didn't pick it up either, because I didn't for a while. It's one of the things, you've you got to pay attention, haven't you? It's, yeah, it, it's just, what, you it know. just seems like a scar. And you think, oh, well, they've clearly got some copy of it from somewhere. They got it off his hand. Off his hand, yeah, because he's got it in his hand. Yeah. Mm. And, yeah, I think it's... I, I, yeah, I, I didn't pick it up either on, uh, on first viewings. It was only, like, sort of later on. But, um, I, yeah, I think it's just great sort of use of storytelling. I think I think back to, like, today's blockbusters, and you don't necessarily get that level <laughs> these days. You don't get that sort of that sort of thought of, you know, the incidental things that you can easily just have or just use in a scene it's the layers of several rewrites yeah and scripts seem to take so long now that they go before the camera when they're not really ready um and in in some cases they make it up acceptably on set 
but this seems so much more mature. Uh, I don't mean mature as in, you know, grown up. I mean mature as in developed as a script because that is not something that is typically part of a first draft. It's more something like, oh, they'll, we'll figure that out you know, later on. It's the sort of thing you, you get on the fourth go-round, or what if we did yeah. this? But I, I think it's such a smart use. But anyway, I think this, I think you're right, that this fight scene, I think, is, it, again, is very well done. It's, it's very fast-moving. Got a lot of things going on. You know what's what's going on. Again, very bloody as well. I mean... It's quite graphic, quite violent, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you got, like, a guy being burnt to death. you got, like, a guy getting his hand burnt. Uh, you get a guy getting um, shot and blood just pouring out of his mouth. Ugh. I've been stabbed. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's very fast moving. Literally, um, Indy and Marion escape. Um, and Marion's like, well, pretty much I'm sticking with you now because, you know, everything's fucked now. now you know, now, now I'm your fucking goddamn partner. I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> she shouldn't swear, but she may as well. <laughs> well when we get to, when we get to um, Tarantino, we're, we're, when we get to Kill Bill Part 1, or volume one. We'll talk about the House of the Blue Leaves, which took eight weeks of shooting, and we'll talk about it when we get there. But we take these, this is much, much shorter, and it's easy to take for granted. But just think about the amount of planning that must have gone into this sequence, not just in terms of stunt work and positioning and cameras and actors and extras and everything else, but safety for a start. The place is on fire. This is this is a very very accomplished piece of work, and it's easy to forget because it's not as iconic as say the opening sequence where he goes to get that gold idol, and it's, it's not, not a showy either. It's not it's a not showy, as... but it's incredibly, incredibly complex, and it is you can only do this with a director who knows what he's doing, particularly in an era where you can't fix it in post in the same way as you can now. Mm. Um, and so you know, move straight to Cairo, where we meet uh, a, a, an old Bond actor. <laughs> well, not the guy who played Bond, but uh, it's, uh, it's John Reese Davis. Yes, complacent for a second. He was uh, basically the Russian head of the KGB in the Living Daylights, and he was Gimli the Dwarf in yeah, the Lord of the Rings. Almost unrecognisable here. He was second choice for this film. The first choice was Danny DeVito. This was really? yeah. This was supposed to be Danny DeVito. It was written as a five foot tall guy, and Danny DeVito couldn't get out of this. And I'm assuming um, Spielberg said that it was because of his TV show. Well, I haven't looked up the transmission dates, so if I'm wrong, I may be very wrong. But I'm assuming that means Taxi. Danny DeVito really wanted to do it and couldn't. Um, while we're on the subject. Uh, of TV, Indiana Jones himself was very nearly played by Tom Selleck. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. That that would have been a very different indie. He had to pull out because of Magnum PI. There is a screen test on the extras of him with Sean Young playing Marion. Wow. And it works okay. I mean, I'm not saying it would have been as good a film or it would have... I can't see him in all the rough and tumble in the same way, to be honest. Would have been a different film. But certainly the bar stuff, he did very well. The World Weary, he did well. But anyway, because of TV, it wasn't Danny DeVito. And they, they offered it to John Reese davies who basically said, well, that's not me, is it? And he was told to play it like Falstaff. Oh, Falstaff. Uh, yeah. And the end result's terrific. He's very memorable. He comes back in Last Crusade, and he's brilliant in that as well. And, you know, Asp's very dangerous. You go first. You Asps. know, there are 
almost everything out of his mouth in bad this, dates. Yeah, almost <laughs> everything out of his mouth. In he this has great place. lines, doesn't he? Terrific. Yeah, it's really good. He just got such a warm presence as well. You know, it's uh, you know, he's he's just like again, it's like the the like the, let's say throwback to Bond. He's like that Bond kind of. Uh, friend kind of thing and he's there to help him along but he's very much like you get that sense of the camaraderie relationship between them yeah a big jolly friendly guy who who does carry some weight as well you know don't you want this guy to be your mate don't you I mean wouldn't yeah, you just you love him to be in your life he's great I know I mean but it's, even when it cuts down to like the serious stuff like Indy something troubles me about the arc you know, and you know, you notice that the, the few people actually through the film try do try and kind of warm it. Like this is this shouldn't be taken lightly. I think uh, the what, what, the environment the warns him. Yeah. As, well, the environment warns him as well, because over time you get more and more stormy weather and wind, and there is plenty of little subtle hints that are easy to miss because I missed them for years. I never missed them as an adult, but I always missed them as a kid. That everything around him is telling him stay well away. And it's, yeah, I think it's it's it it's a very kind of again it's, it goes back to that uh, whole burnt hand thing. It's just it, it, you know it's very it seems very incidental, but it's there you know, and I think it just adds more and more to the film. This is Lawrence Kasdan, who, who well he's most recently written The Force Awakens, but um, he wrote The Empire Strikes Back as well. And yeah, I mean this guy for a period everything he wrote was terrific and this is this is his golden era and it's it's got a wonderful script well we go from from there you've got uh so obviously as i say they're now in cairo and i think the next thing you see is basically the scene where marion ends up getting taken yes this is the bit yeah, i, I always kind of basket. this film this film just moves along so well whatever we say about the relative paces pacings of the sequels this film's just wonderful in terms of its pacing. It keeps yeah. moving. I mean, they get to Cairo, and there's a little bit of setup in that we're given an opportunity to meet Salah, but it doesn't hold anything up. We get a feel for him, and then we're straight on to the plot, which is they're being watched and, and followed. And even the monkey's relevant, because he's basically, he's basically <laughs> working for the Nazis. Max the parrot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you think about it, it's like he's got a cute, friendly monkey, but the balls to make him a Nazi. <laughs> did you know the monkey voices are provided by Frank Welker, who also did the voice of Abu and Aladdin, and also right, Futurama? Yeah, Megatron. My God, I did not know that. I thought that was a real monkey. So actually, you're telling me like an actual guy, Frank Welker, actually did the voices yeah, of the monkey. Because yeah, because the monkey doesn't make the sort of noises that no. you imagine they would. The sort of chirping. Yeah. Well, so how about that? Well, I, I just feel lied to. <laughs> that, that was done by a human. All, all, the, all the monkey noises are done by a human. Well, well I'm are. stunned. Anyway, yeah, Edgy so... Um, like, that's disgusted Chris so much that we're going to go on to Star Trek The Motion Picture from next week. <laughs> no. Yeah. But the, 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 this uh, next actually, again, it's iconic. You know, it has a, it's very playful... Um, you know, you had Marion run, being running around, sort of dodging, hiding in baskets, running from guy with knives, again hitting with a frying pan. But at the same time, you still got like Indy having like these. What I really liked about the fight scenes in Indiana Jones films, like the the punches just seem like ten times louder than they normally would. They feel like almost like gunshots themselves. Some of it is, I think, that they don't. He doesn't have to look smooth. You, you think of Bond and into pre-Craig. 
if he was wearing a suit or you know whatever it would always have to look at he'd always have to look great whereas indy deliberately looks like he slept in his clothes anyway so it's got this rougher improvisational feel to it It, and it really lends itself to the action sequences so well it's almost like every, like it's like an audio like sort of wham or pow, you know, like a, a comic book bubble, you know, when you like you like seen the old TV uh, Batman series in the sixties, you know, it's almost like it's almost like that with the sort of the sound effect of it just hits you so hard. It just it's it's very effective for me. Um, well, this is Ben Burt, of course, who also did all the sound effects on Star Wars. A very very good guy for making everything sound. It's all the kind of well, the similar sort of crew coming through again, isn't it? The cast, well, not the cast, part of the cast, but a lot of the same people being used again um, on the Star Wars series. You, you would expect to anyway, because it is kind of like a, a Lucas production, so it's yeah. pretty much like part of the that canon. Well, like a family again, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So we end up with Matt. We think Marion's been killed, and again, it, it it's a little bit Quantum of Solace. He he gets drunk. He just gets really yeah. drunk and bumps into. Um, Belloc, and we hear dialogue that in any other film would offend us. If we were sat, well, I mean, we got it in The Man with the Golden Gun, that we sat there going, you know, we're not too different, you and I. And we're going, Jesus Christ, what a load of cliched old bollocks. But because it's it's got such pulpy B-movie origins, it's perfectly appropriate that he says to Indy that spells out that they're alike. I think what um, makes it work for me is the fact that the the characters and the acting are kind of like well played. Um, and yet at this point, he's he's down, he's he's drunk, he's drinking. He now he's like confronting with essentially what is arch nemesis, and he he sees him as kind of like responsible for the death of Mary. So he's ready and willing to almost like I'm I'm, I'm half mine just to flower shoot you right here and now because I really don't give a shit if I die. Um, I'm 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 that kind of pissed off, and and I think Belloc is playing it kind of almost like so so it's almost like he wants to kind of come on indie, you know. Let's get on the same field. He know, wants together. to come like, on indie. Yes, <laughs> I never he does. I never got that feeling at all. <laughs> no, no, no. But but he, but he, he essentially he lays his car on the table. He, he he describes essentially what his love for archaeology is, even though it's twisted. It's kind of like it's from indie wants to kind of. Um, essentially, sort of put it for the better good for and, and let it be observed and you know and and, and, and looked at. Whereas Ballot's literally in it for the money and for the glory, really. Um, but he's like romancing the idea of the art, saying it's a it's a transmitter, it's a radio to God, you know, and it you know he's 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 enticed by that power, um, which Indy's like saying, going shut the fuck up, your butt, you know, you're, you're you're talking bullshit with nothing alike kind of thing. Um and it's just played really it's just just played really, really well for me. Um and even down to the when the kids come in and save him. You know, it's just nicely played, you know. Um much better than the sort of kids at the end of um Temple of Doom. It it yeah. feels much more organic. It, it's really great. And, um, and, and and clever and cleverly as well, you know, it's like kind of thing, you know, it's it's it is yeah, it's very it's very subtle as well. And it was set up because like, we know he's staying yeah. with the family because when Marion had the monkey on her, 
they were like, don't worry, the, that monkey can stay with us. And she's like, no, don't worry about that. They're staying with the family. It, it all works, you know, so I think it gets away from that, even though it's, it might be cliched. There's a wrong with being a bit cliched, as far as I concerned, but, you know, I think if it's played well, it's played well, you know. There's a um, scene, isn't there, where there's, like, um, I, I, can't, I don't think if you have his character name, but, like, the actor who played him, he died a couple of years ago. Um, but he's, like, this big kind of scimitar-wielding bloke, and then he just shoots him, and <laughs> I think it's quite funny. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry, yeah, that, that's the, that was because they had food, they had a big fight, um, or like sort of structured ready to go yeah, but everyone for about three in. months yeah yeah dysentery Harrison Ford and he was like can I just shoot him I just shoot him I shoot the sucker <laughs> mm-hmm. and again it's it, it's almost kind of like indicative to its character it, like, just that kind of thing alone I mean apart from the fact that it makes total sense why the fuck wouldn't you yeah exactly you know? <laughs> but, but also it, it kind of just adds to his character I think it's one of those happy accidents where it's like oh shit yeah yeah alright yeah, and yeah. You know, but we'll get to that with Star Wars. I love you. I know was not what the script said. No. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with this at this point. Yeah, it's it's just the way it, again. It's that world weariness that Harrison has when he like when, when he sees a guy and does all the thing with the the swords, kind of like ha ha ha. It's like <laughs> oh fuck this. He's just kind of like oh shit, yeah. I can't be that shit. And Jesus. then of course we move on to the well of soul, soul stuff. Which has the best score in the whole film. The, the Well of Souls is lovely. I think um, yeah. everything. This film just keeps moving. If 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 it wasn't qualitative things, you know, like the effects or whatever, that betrayed its sort of B movie origins, it it would be the speed it all moves at. It's like let, let's just do this quickly, get that shot, move on. There's no fat on this film at all. No, and then, yeah, the score is beautiful. Is the Well of Souls that what they use mainly when they talk about the Ark? Uh, sorry, I'm actually wrong. The Well of Souls is where the Ark is. Sorry, I meant where they go, that room they go to to find out where the Ark is with the Staff of Ra. Yeah, but uh, yeah. That's a brilliant the, the, scene. Yeah, the, the music is absolutely just beautiful. Um, and, and I think even like the, the, the whole romantic Marion theme is just as memorable as the... Uh, actual Indiana Jones theme, uh, which which you don't sort of stop and think about too often, do you? Because obviously you have the other films where Marion's, well, Marion's not in it apart from the fourth one, but, um, you know, so you're more prone to the to the raid, to more the Raiders tune, but, you know, you think about, I think about Jones, I, you, you always, I always think about the Marion score as well, and, and also the art with the whole, like, duh, again, voice of the angel, you know. <laughs> It's just it's just beautiful, all of it. They find out where the Ark is. They've already worked out with the whole bad dates conversation that the Nazis are digging in the wrong place. Uh, they go to dig in the right place. Um, and at the same time, we find Marion's alive. She's been captured by, well, Belloc. And we get an impression that she's tortured by Tope, but we don't know for certain. But they spot Indy and his crew digging in the right place. Yeah, overnight during the, during the storm. And yeah, there's a storm overnight. We are aware everything is getting much, much, much more unsettled because they're getting closer to something they shouldn't touch. It's really impressive stuff. Yeah. It's really well done. It's almost like God saying, no, don't do it, you know. I think that's what it's supposed to imply. Yeah. It, uh, uh, if, you don't even, if you don't believe in God, it's basically, he's told it's not of this world. 
And it's like some sort of air about it that causes this disruption. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And when they collect the arc, they don't touch it with their bare hands. They're wearing gloves. No. And partly for leverage, they've got poles through it. You can't touch it. You can't look inside it. it even that little sort of scene when it's like being shipped and you see like the, the crate starts like burning from inside. Yeah. yeah. And, that rat, and that's okay. like, yeah, that, that kind of like very kind of creepy kind of um, element. Um, what, um, so the thing with Belloc, right, because we are getting to the point where the, uh, where it's basically he's kind of trying to romance Marion. Yes. Um, yeah. what is that all about? Like, okay, is, is this, you could say this is kind of reference to, uh, him always taking, uh, everything that Indy always has. That's the know? way I've always read it. Yeah, I, same I, I, here. I because I don't, I don't think... I, I honestly don't think, whatever you think of Belloc and his motives, I don't think he comes off that sleazy here. I think he's meant to when he's looking in a mirror and she's taking her bra off. He's very pervy. But the whole way, the whole way it's shot, is just—it's almost like it, he's a bit lonely. And when she's thrown into the well of souls, he's genuinely distraught. Yeah, I think he's generally actually fallen for a bit as well. It, that, that, that's what's kind of odd. It's like he's generally concerned. And he's like, you know, um, he's he's actually not rather than just being possessive over her. He's actually he really likes her, and he's had a, he's had fun with her as well. I mean, she's fun. I mean, I've got to say the casting of Karen Allen, genius, because you could find much more bimboish and arguably, I know everything's a matter of taste, uh, more beautiful women. But they've cast this woman who's a real... Um, he references screwball comedies and Preston Sturges um, on the special features, uh, Steven Spielberg. And I kind of see... And he, he referenced a couple of actresses I've not heard of, I think. But the point is that, like, you could have cast much more... Not beautiful, because that's subjective, but you certainly could have cast much more of a stereotype. And he's cast somebody who's got real, real vigour to her. It's it's sad when we get to the fourth film because she's not the same character all of a sudden. But she's really, really good here. And they set her up quite well. They give her lines. And yes, Indy saves her at points. But she doesn't need anybody. Not really. Yeah, she's quite feisty, um, isn't she? Quite independent I think well. she's terrific. I don't know what you guys think. I, I think they kind of it's well suited. I mean, you can't if you would think generally think about like who would actually romance someone like Indiana Jones? It would be someone. It would be somebody like Cameron, like wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be someone who is a bit more tom- tom- uh, tomboyish, someone from his kind of world, you know. Um, so it 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 makes that like their relationship kind of makes sense. It's like you know, they, obviously they have a history, so you kind of you, you, you kind of pave all that kind of. All the, all the stars have feelings for this attraction. It's pretty much like straight all in. The attention's always is always hot. She, I mean, what 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 I didn't forgot to mention was uh, when they first introduce, uh, when we first both see the characters meet for the first time after ten years, she punches him. Yeah, and and I, and I was half expecting. And she to do really the punches him. Yeah, this is not and, and, Paris Carver slapping Bond. Yeah, <laughs> this is a and, punch. And that's what I half expected was kind of like that very much like slap. But no, no, she is not from that ilk. She is a proper rough, ready tomboy. She punches him, <laughs> and 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 it, and, it, and it wasn't even like oh let's have a proper fight. It's like punch where the fuck are you? I am I'm, I'm pissed off kind of thing. You know, 
Um, and that's just her. And I think it's just great, you know. Um, but again, sticking her in the middle of nowhere. I mean, Nepal, she might be in a city for all we know. But certainly it gets a feel in the way the film presents it of remoteness. She's in the middle of nowhere in a bar. And the very fact that Indy turns up there suggests that he thinks Abner is still there. But she's not. She's on her own. And she's winning drinking competitions, you know. And if it wasn't for the Nazis chasing them for reasons unrelated to who she is, the fact is you could drop her anywhere in the world and she'll get by. The only reason she's kidnapped is is the whole arc storyline. I think this is a very, very special leading lady that they've, they've both written and cast here. And I think having come out of the Bond series, she stands comparison with anything from there. I would, in fact, not in looks necessarily, but in character and writing, she would be better than any of the Bond girls. I'd put her ahead of Tracy. Oh, really? Yeah. That strongly? Really? Yeah, I mean, not, not, not in the context of the story, because Tracy was troubled and they fell in love and stuff, but in terms of the light they show, they shine on her character and the characterization and the mix of actress to material, it's at least as good. I'm very, very impressed by her. And again, you get the classic storytelling of her kind of trying trying to escape by, okay, well, I'm going to out-drink him, and I'm going to subtly put the dress on a knife, planning to sort of, like, grab it when he's kind of drunk enough. And it's just that kind of and really nice character work when she finally does pull the knife, and they both just start laughing. I <laughs> love that. Kind of drunk. I love that. Yeah. It, it, it almost seems like, and I've not seen that, the only other film I've ever seen that in is American Beauty where Kevin Spacey and Wes Bentley's characters are caught having a little smoke and they start laughing and it's so realistic it's got the feel of an outtake. And this does too. It's almost like Spielberg left them to get drunk for a couple of hours and then came back to film it. (laughs) It, It's so real. I, I, I cannot give enough praise to both of the actors here. Uh, and and it's just I I also there must be like a general infection between the two that two to some degree because she does go straight to kind of like the the safest thing she could think of which is in the arms of Bella yeah. <laughs> as soon as you know but then you have the whole gag with the coat hanger kind of look, looks kind of like a nunchuck but there is that kind of like fucking hell she's she gonna run off with Bella now she says at one it? point she says you know maybe we'll meet again under different circumstances now not yeah. for a minute. Do I think she put this guy ahead of Indy? And not for a minute do I think she's just like Tiffany Case, whoever, you'll do. You suit what I want. <laughs> I, I don't think that at all. But I genuinely think like they are too, that if their lives had unfolded different, they might have been all right for each other. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just generally from that, she says, oh, I, I like you in terms of, like, I, I, well, I enjoyed my time, I had fun, you know. Maybe, maybe, maybe when this whole thing blows over, we can have a, get pissed at one point, have a chat, you know, or something along those lines, because uh, that's, you know, because obviously, you know, they only had to spend, like, a certain amount of time together, and that was just getting pissed. And again, yeah, and again you see the distraught, you say distraught, he's, he's a bit kind of like, oh. Uh, <laughs> well, like yeah, I mean, he's not and... crying or anything, but he definitely is like, that wasn't the fucking deal. No. It's like, oh, what did you do that for? I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> and the whole snake thing is okay. It's, again, a very sort of serial stroke B-movie kind of setup. It's done all right. It, it's okay. It's over fairly quickly. And when they get out of there, 
the outtake that was only pointed out a couple, or not the outtake, but the mistake that was pointed out a couple of weeks ago is he pushes the block out of the wall to get out. And it, and it bounces. You see the shadow of it bouncing. And as they run away and the camera changes angle, some guy is in shot that wasn't there before. Well, yeah, I mean, these kind of things don't bother me. I mean, like, bother like, me like, Again, it's meant to be like this, this cheap quickie, so mistakes are not really a problem. It's like like the oh you can just kind of see like the glass that was in front of like Harrison Ford and the snake. It's like well, well yeah. Do you do you really think they would just put an actual like poisonous snake in front of Harrison? Well, Ford's I mean that's face? been cut out on the Blu-ray. But I remember my father when he was alive saying to me, "Well, couldn't they have done anything about that?" And I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, you can see it." He said, "Couldn't they have sorted that out?" I said, "What at the time?" He said, "Yeah." And I said, "Well, how?" It's in camera. You don't have CG. I mean, you can cut out the reflection now, so it's not a problem. And it, it isn't there on the Blu-ray. I mean, the, that little reflection that tells you there's glass between them. But yeah, it's a venomous cobra. What are you going to do? Drop an actor like a foot away from it? With all insurance things and everything. Yeah, it's, it, I think what, when these kind of things, like you ever, you ever watch them kind of like movie mistake shows? Yeah, and they're smug and annoying. I know they piss me off because it's all kind of like, oh god, these these filmmakers, oh god, all oh, these mistakes. Oh, Indiana Jones like pushes a boulder, it bounces off. Yeah, because like, they're going to actually use a real fucking boulder. It's just, oh, it, they, they yeah, they do my fucking titting. They <laughs> fucking, it's it's just the whole tone of it. It's just like you know, I, yeah, okay, it's they're, they're interesting, but can you just remove the kind of annoying like oh. Aren't we so clever pointing out mistakes that of, you know, of, of things that we can't even dream of doing ourselves? You know that kind of, yeah, no. But anyway, I I digress. <laughs> but then we move on to a bit of the film that I would suggest is probably one of the bits of the bits that w- would be considered iconic, the fight by the plane with Pat Roach. Oh was yeah. Pat Roach? Was Pat Roach ever been in this film as well, already? before or is that all my um, imagining that's one of my fun facts actually he's actually in this film oh, twice. leave it there because we don't <laughs> want to take away from the party we're going to have later <laughs> I shall tell you that secret later on alright He well, obviously we uh, listeners to this podcast we've discussed him before because he was in Never Say Never Again at the health farm um, it's a really good fight scene it was only written to be like four or five punches it was meant to be quite quick Harrison Ford um, badly injured himself during the sequence because the plane ran over his knee and ruptured. Ow! Anterior cruciate ligament was torn. Ow! Um, Because he didn't want to submit to local medicine, they just tied it up and carried on. Uh, But we're going to get to a worse injury with Harrison Ford next week. But uh, certainly this is pretty bad. He suffers for his craft a lot, doesn't he? Mm, uh, But they made it up as they went along and they kept going. And this fight scene got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it is so quintessentially Harrison Ford. You've got the ticking clock of the whole thing's going to catch fire fairly soon. He's massively, massively outmatched. And it isn't like some of the Bond films where one punch is the equaliser. He is being beaten up. Yeah, and it's it's kind of like, it it goes to what Indy is. I mean, he's he's a tough little bastard that he can take a lot, and he has to kind of outthink him and outplay him because he can't outpunch the guy because he's twice his size. Uh, This is actually probably one of my favourite movie fistfights. I'd agree. Yeah, it's just great. All the way through, I mean, even when we get to Crystal Skull, whatever we think of that film... 
there's a punch up in that film where I just go, yeah, he's still got it. Harrison Ford's good at this stuff. Yeah. Really, really good. He's Harrison. really good at sort of hand to hand, scrappy fighting. It, again, it's the world weariness as well. It's the whole thing where he's like, he's, he's beckoned to come down by the guy and he's kind of like, go, yeah, all right, all right, all right. I'm kind of. It's not like Daniel Craig or, um, let's say, uh, Matt Damon or something, where it's, or, or even Batman Begins, where it's short and sharp. It's a lot more lunging. Concise as well. Yeah, it's not. It's not it's not sharp like that. It's messy, but it's really good. Yeah, it, it feels more real as well. It feels like more like an actual fight. Because like, you know, when, when he gets punched, he literally just falls on his ass. Yeah, and it's actually just a jab. That's what I love about it. It's not some big haymaker. The bit that buckles his legs and he falls on his ass is the first little jab. It's nothing. <laughs> and yeah. I love it. I love it for that. That like he's like, and he it, it's the first punch, so it's a very quick way of saying, "Oh fuck, I'm out of here." <laughs> I think it's fantastic, and of course, not only not only is it very tense and a great action sequence and a bloody ending with blood spattering all over the plane, oh, it's but it leads on to like off on the Nazi uh, sign as well. As well, it's a nice little touch. Yeah, and yeah. it and it and it moves on to the the, the whole sort of um, van chase sequence. Which is really, really good, and again, very B movie serial guy jumping off a off a horse into like a truck. Yeah, it, it just doesn't stop moving, does it? I mean, like, I mean, you could argue the rest of the film kind of takes a breather, and it just, you know, it's more kind of bust. It's just, but there isn't an action scene after this, really. No. So, um, which is again is an odd choice, considering you think there'll be like a a big set piece. But I love that. It. I love that. I don't like it about superhero films i've said it before one day down the line we're going to be talking about marvel films and week after week we're going to be talking about really good films that just turn into rote action for its last 20 minutes this film doesn't do that no though there could be an argument to say that the lead lead hero doesn't do anything at all there is an argument (laughs) there is an argument he affects nothing and it's actually true. And when I watched this film, I kept thinking of Goldfinger. Because, like, Bond did fuck all <laughs> And they, what they've got, both got in common is, actually, they're both great. So you can go too far in picking fault. The, the point is valid. Indy, uh, if Indiana Jones wasn't in this film, they would all achieve exactly the same things, except maybe Marion would be dead. That, yeah. That's about the only difference. And when you look at Goldfinger, you can make more of a case for Bond influence in it, but by God, for a lot of that film, he's achieving nothing. Yeah. And um, But it doesn't hurt the film, but and, it, and, it, and it's strangely in keeping with the character that like he's, he's meant to be not substandard, but not as good as the sort of heroics he has in his head of what he is and could be. What... I always see it's it's not necessarily like the plot; it's the journey. I think. Oh, if anything, yeah. If any, if anything, you could just say, okay, well, Indies our way into the into the the journey of this. Yeah. To like kind of like follow what happens, yeah. um, and you know, and and, and there, there is something. I mean, yeah, okay, oh, all he does is close your eyes, but it it goes to point. It goes to the point where like, well, no, we he figures it out. He, you know, you could say also if you want to go deep into it. Bellat's always one step ahead of him, 
But when it came when it came down to this, ultimately he figured out you no know, the right thing. He, he figured out the the death nails to to see the arc open. He's, he realized no, we need to close our eyes to survive this, which is something that Belloc did not see. That's a deleted scene. That was that is in there somewhere. Uh, because in the film it's kind of a bit out of nowhere. It's yeah. almost like he instinctively knows. Yeah. Um, which again isn't a problem because um, he's been warned it's not of this earth. So the idea that he might say this is not for human eyes, I think it's just about acceptable. But the fact is, it does come out of nowhere where he says, "Oh, don't look at it." Yeah, I mean, you could just play it as the fact that. Um... Like, let's not see this gruesome thing. Whatever happens, just like let's just not. It's safer. It, it might just be it's safer. Yeah, um, and it's like you go, oh shit, it's over. But what, what I always figure, uh, always think about, like, okay, well, everyone around them's dead. They're still tied to a post. How the hell did they get out? <laughs> uh, they burnt off. They burnt off. Did you they? can't actually see it in the film. It, oh, okay. it it almost plays up the the sort of god element that like the unrighteous have been killed and they've been freed. Oh, okay. I, I'm not sure what to think of it to be honest with you, but it's okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it moves the, moves the film. We have just kind of like jumped a lot of the thing, the whole thing with the. <laughs> well, yeah, because after yeah, we missed chase, quite a few scenes. I think they they gather they get back the ark and then he's already told Marion. Which is a bit I love where she says, he says, and then what? And, and he's, he actually says, I don't know, I'm making this up as I go along. Yeah. yeah which is just so, so, if you think of the best Bond films, there are points in the film where Bond is, is having to either go off plan or something goes wrong. And there's an element of reacting to circumstances. And this film is great for that. But he tells them to get uh, a boat to, to England sorted out. Because he's going to basically recapture the Ark and then stick it on a boat to go to England to go into a museum. I'm assuming. Yeah. Maybe it's just it's just the closest place. It's, it's uh, maybe maybe the closest yeah. sanctuary for it rather than trying to take it to America. They get it back in what's a terrific action sequence, and then they get on the boat, and it's the, we get one of the few bits of character development that don't come through action. That Indy is in a shitload of pain. It is very Daniel Craig's James Bond in that, like, he's hurt. He's badly hurt. He's a hero in that he gets things done, but he's hurt. And she's trying to, like, kiss and she actually hits him with the mirror, which is funny. Yeah. It, it's, fun, it's funny because he lets out this, like, huge scream yeah. and she just pops out like, you say something? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what I love about it is he says, it, it, it's not the years, honey, it's the mileage. Yeah. And I just think that that describes both him and James Bond. <laughs> when you're looking at points of comparison, we won't always talk about James Bond through this series, but we've only just come out of Bond, and this is like Spielberg's and Lucas's version, and you can see parallels there. The Bond is seasoned, and Indy is seasoned. We've missed years of adventures and action. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I can't. I mean, I know we've got like the adventures of the young Indiana Jones. Uh, there, I mean, I'm not seeing many of them. Nor have I. Um, but um, again, like, like Bond, I could happily sit and watch Indiana, like more and more Indiana Jones films. It won't happen. Well, they're, they're doing a new one, aren't they? But um, uh, which which leads which leads me to another question. I know Harrison Ford is confirmed to do it. Yeah. I know they've basically said he is indie. Yeah. Um, 
Would you sign off on the idea, let's just say they go in direction of, like, say, Bond and say, right, well, let's just recast the character and, and carry on and, you know, carry on as normal? Yeah. Would you Would you be up for that? Would you think that that would be, like, do you reckon it would work as well? I don't think well, they've got a Harrison? choice. They, they paid $4 billion for Lucasfilm. Um, Star Wars is great, but it's a film a year at the moment. Uh, you've got this IP there, and I think you've got... A, I mean, India. Harrison Ford will be too old at some point, even if you don't think he is now. And at some point, and I don't mean to be nasty, but he'll pass on. And they want to keep making Indiana Jones films. And when we get to series, the fourth one in this series, one of the big problems I've got with it is the setting. Indy belongs in the 30s and 40s. It was really odd to see him running around on like a nuclear site in the 50s and with greasers. And I think it was, it's, and the next film, presumably, if it's in real time, is going to be like late 60s. I can't see that indie in like the Woodstock era. So <laughs> it, it's. This is why this is why you cast Chris Pratt in the role and just reset it from zero and start again. So you've got a whole new timeline. I was horrified by the idea, but we've been kind of set up with reboots over the years now. And when I watched him in Jurassic World, whatever you think of the film. I was like, yeah, please be indie. The only bit I'm not sure about is I'm not sure if I can see Chris Pratt and the college professor scenes. No, he's, he's quite he's quite young appearance. I'm, not, quite, I'm, just, not, I'm just not sure he sells smart in the same way as Harrison Ford did. And again, I'm not calling him thick at all. I just I'm not sure I can see Chris Pratt playing those bits, but I can certainly play see him playing the Indiana Jones quote unquote bits. Anyone better than Shia LaBeouf for sure. I, th- I think it's between that or uh, or, or um, Cooper in it, uh, Bradley Cooper. Yeah, I mean, bear in mind yeah. they were originally talking about a film in 2018 that was going to be a reboot. At that point, Chris Pratt would have been roughly the same age as Harrison Ford was in this film, and I'd have been okay with that. The fact is, at some point, it will be recast, and they can say they're not going to all they like, either. In five years, ten years, twenty years, or thirty years, there will be somebody else playing Harrison Ford's character in like the thirties or forties set Indiana Jones films, and I'm kind of all right with it because it's come to be expected now. And when they announce there's a new Indiana Jones film with a seventy-seven-year-old Harrison Ford, whilst I don't think his age was the big problem, and we'll talk about it when we get to Crystal Skull. It's got a shelf life on it, and I kind of wish they'd grasped the nettle and recast it then. Yeah, like, well, now now I just feel like because because you literally could just pick it off from Last Crusade and carry on and just say, right, well, it's still in that era. Tell you what, I feel like I feel a bit like I did when The Dark Knight Rises came out, and we were already knew there was going to be a Man of Steel, and we already knew they were going to go for like a DC universe afterwards, and so we knew that that. We knew that three or four years on, what, however good this film was or wasn't, it was going to be obsolete because we'll have moved on to a different version. And I feel a little bit like that about the forthcoming Indiana Jones film, that all you're actually doing is delaying the inevitable. It, it could be like the last hurrah for House and Ford. I hope so. I don't inherently have a problem with his age because when we get to Crystal Skull, his age ain't the problem for me. Mm. But we'll talk yeah. about it when we get there. Sorry, the booth that's the problem. Uh, there's <laughs> lots of things that are the problem. Yeah, he's one of them. He's one of them, definitely. I think George Lucas is the problem, actually. 
But um, yeah. <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly though, with this film, uh, the only sequence in the film I'm not that bothered about is the sequence we we were just on, where he's on the boat. I like it's not the years, honey, it's the mileage. But then the Nazis kept catch up with them, and this feels a bit long-winded. Yeah, it's 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 just kind of like it's just trying to like figure out where to get to the the bit where they do the arc, isn't it? Really, so they take Marion again. Uh, Indy sneaks on the, on board the sub. He kind of like hides, and he it, and then of course he has to get captured, so he tries to blow it up. And then uh, I suppose it's like one last thing for Bella to do is kind of talk him out of it. And saying like, no, you love architects as much as I do. You can't possibly blow this thing up. And he's just kind of like, oh shit, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> you got me there. And then yeah, then we get to that scene, the face melty scene, uh, which is again iconic in itself. I mean, you watch it now, and it is still graphic. I'd say. So. Did you notice as well during that um, during that chase through the desert as well that Bella keeps a fly? I've seen this film hundreds of times, but never before did I realise. I saw this. A couple of summers ago, pop up screens in London. Oh, you mean the fly thing? Where he's like, yeah, he's, he's, he's talking. He's like, um, it's literally in that scene yeah. where he's kind of he's standing above them with his with his grenade launcher. And um, what's the line? I had it written down somewhere. Oh yeah, yeah. You give mercenaries a bad name, and a fly crawls into his mouth and he eats it. <laughs> it's really gross. I'm seeing it pop up. I see it on the big screen on pop up screens in London, and I was like, he eats a fly. Oh, that's disgusting. Well, it it, it kind of crawls up to his mouth and disappears. So we're not sure if it actually just flew off or just crawled in his mouth. Or he just goes in. Well, it doesn't stop and go. It doesn't stop and go like, mmm, and chew mm, it. Delicious. <laughs> Extra protein while they're in the desert, you know. So. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I, I, I think it just flew off. Uh, I think it just looks like it did. But I like to maintain the eat. It'd be funny. <laughs> yeah. But no, I just, I just never noticed that before. I was like, oh, I just happened to notice it, and I thought, oh, that's a bit gross. But um, yeah, the, the face melting scene, terrifying. Mm. I've, I've seen it said about this film that it's about Indy's journey back from like, not a mercenary, but somebody who's lost track of why he's doing it, to understanding the value of what he's doing i'm not sure i agree just because in the very first scene with uh william hootkins character he's saying and the art goes in a museum yes he yes. always wanted it to go in a museum i don't see Indy having much of an arc in this film at all actually no it's like compared with um, the last crusade for example you know he's trying to get the the grail so it goes in a museum sort of thing he has an arc there museums. yes yeah yeah, but not so much here, though, no. no. I suppose he has the art in terms of his reconnection with Marion. Yes, I guess so, yeah. yeah. Pretty much, yeah, I think. It's all about, the, all about Marion's more kind of his, uh, the arc in this film, I think, rather than the actual Ark of the Covenant. So as we'll find out next week, uh, Temple of Doom is a prequel set the year before. And frankly, if I'd have Willie Scott in my ear the previous year, I would be very, very respectful of Marion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm sorry I fucked up. <laughs> I prefer Karen Allen's character to Mrs. Scott's character, just because like I mean you know play this sort of Lego video games and she's twice as annoying in Lego form than she is in real life. Mm-hmm. So so Raiders of the Lost Ark guys, uh, that's I think where we finish really. We end up with the Ark being sort of tucked away. We're told top men are working on it, but it's clearly been put top in what we later men. find in area area fifty one. We find out later in this series. Yeah. What's our final thoughts on it? Uh, it's a childhood it. favourite. Um, it's not my favourite Indiana Jones film. It's not. It's not, it's, it's not my personal favourite. It's not the one I I I enjoy the most. But I, I think 
if I looked at it quality wise, I'd probably say it is the, it's still the best. You know I think I mean? what it has that none of the rest of the films have in quite the same way is the perfect pacing or almost perfect pacing. You look at it isn't as perfect as say a Back to the Future, but you look at Back to the Future and with with only one or two scenes exception, every scene advances plot or character. Yeah. And this film is almost there as well. I honestly think I prefer any I prefer this universe more than anything else Spielberg's done and I'd include Jaws in that. And that's not to say anything negative about Jaws. I think Jaws is fantastic. But I really, really love this series. Uh, or I certainly love two films in this series, and we'll talk about them. But I'm with Chris. There's a film I like more than this. And I wouldn't... It's easy to say, well, this is the great one and that's not as good. But you've got to kind of quantify that. Is it just because this is the first one? To some degree. But this film is paced better than the one we talk about later and also that's at the birth of cg so it's got some ropey effects in it but this is magnificent it's perfect and there's a couple of times in the film where harrison ford grins there's one bit where he's trying to escape at the end at the beginning where he's trying to get out from where he grabs the gold idol and he grabs the sort of um rope and he smiles just before it breaks and i just think God, you were a charming bastard back in your day, <laughs> and you. But you were also perfect because you were world weary. You weren't a superstar at twenty. You hit it big in your mid thirties, so you've got like a bit of life in there as well. And you're good looking, but you're not Brad Pitt good looking. You are kind of a, a bit every of, man. Yeah, a bit more every man. A bit, a bit working collar, like sort of blue yeah. He's the only other of... man I've ever seen that could have played like Rick in Casablanca. He's very everyman, but you're never quite sure whether to trust him. A bit like an Alec Baldwin. With Alec Baldwin, it's a bit more sleazy, but there's like a darkness there under it as well. I really think this film is almost perfect, and they've locked into perfect casting. And in virtually every case, because Karen Allen, you could have cast anybody. It's Steven Spielberg, and I know he's just made 1941, but you've got the director of Star Wars, which is the biggest film of all time, and The Empire Strikes Back is about to come out at the point where they cast and film this. You've got Steven Spielberg, who's created Jaws, which is the second biggest film of all time. You just think, well, that's where you know you would you could cast anybody you wanted, and what you've ended up doing is casting this woman who's not that well known she's only really been in Animal House she's not conventionally beautiful but she's perfect for what you're trying to do so uh, Becca what, what did you, uh, what's your final thoughts on uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah this is an absolutely classic of a movie um, without doubt it kind of really set the set the bar high for other future action and adventure movies to follow um, I must admit that next week's film um, Temple of Doom is not my favourite in the series um, but Again, that's kind of going along with a lot of the public opinion at the time. Um, but yeah, I love Harrison Ford in the role. I mean, nobody else is indie. Um, even if they do cast, I don't know, Chris Pratt or whoever comes afterwards, he will always be in the role. Um, and yeah, I just absolutely love, love, love this film. T- it's absolute pieces. So that's Raiders of Lost Ark done. Um, no, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like having some fun. Uh, fun I don't know if there's any... It's a, what, do you have some? I have five fun facts. She has some facts, and they're as fun 
as my pants. Come on, Carl, check back. <laughs> So yeah, fact number one, stunt coordinator on Bond and many other movies, Vic Armstrong, um, appears in this movie as uncredited German soldier. Fact number two, obviously, Indiana, his name is Henry Jones Jr. Um, and the storyline goes that he's named after his dog, who is in fact named after George Lucas's own dog, Indiana, a Alaska Malamute, who is very fluffy. Fact number three, as we talked about earlier, about the ratings and censorship and things like that, the movie originally has an R rating. Um, due to the face melting and the graphic death scene. Um, I kind of felt that Bellick's death was too graphic, so Spielberg decided to superimpose some flames on top of it to make it less graphic somehow, um, and also to secure those, that PG rating. Um, fact number four, I mentioned Pat Roach earlier. Um, he actually died twice in this movie, um, once um, as a giant Sherpa at the Nepalese bar, and again as the Nazi mechanic who gets mashed by the rotor blades. So is he the guy that is he fighting Indy in both times? Because obviously you know it's the it's the German guy with the rotor blades. But then there's also the uh, is he the guy that um, Talot goes like shoot them, shoot them both. Yeah, that guy. He's the giant shepherd. Hey, sorry, just for a clapper. Yeah, you can't miss him. So, and also the guy, the guy with the eye patch on the bike um, during the fight scenes in Cairo. He's also in the Nepalese bar as well. So he's another character that you see twice. Um, playing two different people. <laughs> Saving money, folks. And fun fact number five, Raiders did indeed set the um, set the bar high, set this very high standard for other action-adventure movies. And it was the highest-grossing film of 1981. So that's my five fun facts for you. That's impressive, though. Highest-grossing film in 1981? Yep, yeah, in America. It's, it's I think um, $212 million or something like that, or probably a lot more than that. It sold 70 million tickets. In, in, yeah, that's it, yeah. So I may have got the wrong figures there. But... Modern prices, we are talking about an extremely successful film. Yeah, um, it outsold. Obviously, I think the Oscar winner of that year was On Golden Pond, and it outsold that. So. Well, it outsold an intimate father daughter drama. <laughs> it won the Oscar, right? Yeah. Well, so yeah, the modern equivalent would be it outdid the artist. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't mean shit, to be honest. The artist yeah, was a good it, movie. It, it was extremely. Um, yeah, I know, but it doesn't... Yeah, but okay, let's be honest. Does actually anyone care about the arse anymore? care about the dog. <laughs> well, people oh, do, don't dog. they? See his dog. Cute. No, he's a very cute little dog, though. But no, I think that was interesting how it was the... Um, was it the first black and white movie to win an Oscar in 100 years or something like that? Well, since they made black and white films. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly, since the colour was introduced. Well, I think that's interesting, though. Little tidbit. Yeah. Might win you in a pub quiz someday. Anyway, Maybe. moving on. <laughs> Maybe. Find us on social media, folks. You can find me at the Pasty Kid 1976 on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Cinematronics on Twitter, and you can also find this podcast as well as the other podcasts I do at Cinematronics.co.uk. If you want to, you can find me on Twitter at RVMovies, um, but we are at Expect Us to Talk. You can also email us, Expect Us to Talk at gmail.com, or on Facebook.com slash Expect Us to Talk. And also, if you go onto YouTube, and search expect us to talk you'll find us on there too what what's next for us what what film we covering what what film will be doing next week sophie's choice oh okay oh so i've never seen sophie's choice tissues at the ready she makes a choice <laughs> okay is it, is it which child will she's live called sophie. which child will die she makes a choice and she's called sophie but it, hang on, <laughs> Becca, isn't 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 that like spoiler because i thought the whole like 
lead up to it of thinking, oh, which man should you choose? And well, that's it. That's what you have you to go watch in, and find you out. You go in, where you go in expecting it to be some threesome storyline where she focuses more on one than the other, and you sat there with your box of Kleenex. Unfortunately, because it's a bit of a tearjerker, you get to use, you get to let it to look, <laughs> you get it to look appropriate that you took a box of Kleenex in with you. So, uh, Becca. Dr. John, Dr. John. You expected to talk for a return with the Temple with of Doom. With dear John, apparently. <laughs> I might have misheard that. Ne- ne- next week, there'll be no time for love. Becca, what's next? <laughs> that, that terrible impression is quite funny. Are we, are we talking about that um, second that Aquas fo- Follower song to Barbie Girl? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had that on CD. Very embarrassing. Anyway, <laughs> if you hadn't mentioned it, you just brought that up completely unprompted. <laughs> anyway, do you expect it to talk? We'll return with Temple of Doom. 